All right, welcome to episode one of the Watching Bourbon podcast, the podcast for lovers of watches and whiskey, as is pretty self-explanatory in the title. Um, And if you didn't get that or didn't understand the introduction, you're in the wrong place. Um, So, you know, really this uh, podcast is going to be all about kind of going through the crazy world of watches and whiskey right now that have been pretty much price pumped out of control um if you've listened to the trailer you know you heard me talking about basically trying to find a bottle of weller um and seeing it on the shelf of your local liquor store for 200 dollars when the retail on that is 40 or you know thinking about buying your first rolex submariner when the retail is supposed to be a little sub 10,000 and you look online and it's 25,000 um so there are a lot of traps out there today in terms of buying what you should buy what's an actual value what's a gimmick um so really we're going to be talking about kind of the best values out there how to get them um what's worth it um and how you can really still enjoy watch and whiskey collecting for the right reasons um and also enjoy a watch as it should be enjoyed as something you wear on your wrist day in and day out and bourbon for something that you put into a glass and put into your mouth, not just have it sit on a shelf, collect dust and make it impossible for other people to get. So with that, um, I will introduce you to my co-host, a good friend of mine, Mike, and we will kind of together be walking through this (laughs) somewhat expensive, but enjoyable hobby that both of us have picked up over the last few years. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Cool. So um, as we are going to do with each episode at the start, we will do a glass and wrist check. Um, So it's only appropriate for my glass and wrist check um, that in the glass, I have Knob Creek, um, just the basic Knob Creek, everybody, not a special edition, not a single barrel, not a store pick, the Knob Creek nine year which is the first bourbon I was really introduced to a few years ago. It made me fall in love with bourbon. And you will hear me talk a lot about why this bottle is great. I will give you two seconds on it quickly. They have recently brought back the nine-year age statement on Knob Creek, um, but it is not a minimum nine years. There is basically anywhere from nine years to 13-year-old bourbon in every single bottle. It is freaking delicious, and you basically can get it for around $35 um, home run. I'll be talking a lot more about this. You'll probably want me to shut up about it in future episodes. And then on the wrist, I have my Omega Seamaster 300M Professional. Um, This is my first quote-unquote real watch. Um, I grew up with watches. I had watches for many years, but this is my first Swiss-made quote-unquote, again, luxury watch. Um, I believe I will be buried in this watch. It is my favorite watch ever. And again, you will probably be very sick and tired of hearing about this if you listen for a few episodes, Um, but I shouldn't scare you away. So Mike, how about you? What do you got in the glass and on the wrist? Well, first off, I'm going to say you can never talk too much about Knob Creek. It's a classic. It's incredible. It's what everyone should be drinking, (laughs) but not what I'm drinking right now. I am actually... Everyone except for you. (laughs) Everyone except for me. Of course. (laughs) Now, I'm actually uh, drinking, uh, similar to you, what got me started on whiskey uh, was Lagavulin. And I'm drinking their special edition, 
the Offerman edition, Lagvulin 11, finished in uh, Guinness casks. Ooh. And yeah, it's actually little, it's a little, little bit it's a little bit more up your alley. I know it's still PD yeah. and a little more bougie than me today, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, Lagvulin was it, it's it's an odd first choice uh, for for any whiskey drinker to to get started um, because of how PD it is. But there was something about it. It was it was <laughs> it had a lot to do with Nick Offerman and his character on Parks and Rec. Uh, <laughs> that you know, Ron Swanson was the man, the the man's man, and I just wanted to drink what he was drinking. So I got myself a bottle of Lagavulin, and I never looked back. Yeah, and don't like anybody listening out there, like who might be like eye rolling. I would say like unsubscribe right now, right? <laughs> because like if you like, there's there's a million different reasons to get into watches or get into whiskey, and like seeing your favorite character in a movie or a show, start drinking it, and then you jump on the train. That's a completely legitimate reason. And, you know, it's just, like, basically what makes you happy. So it's all good. And yeah. so, like, Mike, what do you got on the wrist? So on the wrist, I also have my first, quote-unquote, real watch, uh, Swiss-made watch. I've got the Omega Seamaster 300 uh, Master, Co- Master Coaxial, uh, which is basically a an upgraded and remodeled uh, version of the original Seamaster 300 from 1957. Um, it is just a beautiful, beautiful timepiece, very simple, um, which the, the first time I ever tried it on, I, I knew right away this, this was going to be my first watch. And I wear it at least two, three times a week because you could wear it anywhere. You can wear it to a wedding. You can wear it to work. You can wear it while you're sitting in your pajamas watching uh, uh, the F1 race like I did earlier today. <laughs> yeah, and disclaimer for, for anybody listening, um, Mike and I, neither of us are scuba divers. Neither of us were in the Navy, and neither of us um, have ever operated um, a boat, I don't think, regularly, maybe like once or twice on a lake. So, you know, the <laughs> the Seamasters on our wrists are definitely for aesthetic purposes and not uh, day-to-day purposes, but that doesn't make them any less special. Um, you know, in terms of this is a brand to start talking about, I think that's a really good space because it's kind of what kicked us both off in our, in our love of kind of Swiss watches. Um, you know, for me, it was... Again, of course, you saw kind of the Seamaster 300M um, on Pierce Brosnan's wrist during GoldenEye. They have done a really good job with the Seamaster over the last almost 20 years now of evolving it in a way where it still pays homage to the kind of GoldenEye Seamaster, um, but they have both evolved it from an aesthetic point of view um, to kind of keep up with the latest bezel styles and build materials, but also they've kept up with it in terms of kind of horology advancements in the movement space. So of course the, the Brazen version of the Seamaster was actually quartz, um, you know, battery driven. And now you just have on the latest version, this incredible, um, incredible chronometer certified movement um you know they brought in the open case back for the newest version which actually i'm a little bit of a hater of i i i'd much rather have the classic omega seamaster hippocampus um 
kind of on the back, which is what I have on the case back of mine. But, you know, whether you're for the Seamaster, whether you're a dial man with who prefers the waves or kind of uh, no wave, I'm a no wave guy myself, you know, it is a great piece of uh, watch history now, cinematic history, style history. And, you know, I think for a watch that around clocks in right now at retail at 5,200 new, I got one that was a few years old in 2018 and I got it at like $2,300 on eBay with box and papers. And you compare that to some of the layout and, you know, options with the, the current Submariner I don't even think it's a it's a close contest. I don't know what your thoughts are, Mike, but I know you kind of have the more retro version, and there's not that many kind of comparable dive watches in the space. But you know, what what do you kind of love about your your Seamaster? So, first off, yes, I love the uh, old school retro uh, aspect of of my watch. The um, just the 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 vintage um, font. The, the the dial everything about it um, the simplicity of it you know there, there's a reason why I went with the the vintage Seamaster um, it, it's because of the simpli- because of the simplicity and it just number one you know I know a lot of buying watches looking at watches is how it looks you know how 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 it appeals to the eye that got me with this watch, but even more so was the feel. I tried it on, and I knew immediately I needed it. Um, it fit the wrist perfectly. Uh, the strap, the the beautiful strap on this watch. I'm taking it off right now just to kind of admire it. Um, it 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 beat me. It, it beat all other watches that I looked at that day. That that first day that. You took me watch shopping <laughs> because you were the one who took me watch shopping that very first time. And that made you, yeah. It's not the it's not the most financially sound hobby to pick up, <laughs> but you know what? There's a. Having said that, we will be discussing a bunch of micro brands that are freaking amazing, and you can get for a few hundred dollars. And we'll also be diving into, pun intended, uh, a lot of Seikos that we love that are very mm-hmm. affordable. So, this is in no way a. Um, a uh, wealthy man's only pursuit. Uh, I would be, you know, case in point <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, that an example of that. So, you know, there are, there are more than, there are many ways to kind of get into, to get into watch collecting and, you know, you, you shouldn't feel limited. I'd say the biggest, the biggest kind of uh, test is that you have to be honest with yourself when you're buying a watch is do you actually like the watch or do you like the brand and would you care if nobody ever realized what you were wearing on your wrist for me i had the honest conversation and i was like i'm like 80 percent. i don't care of course it's like nice to be noticed every once in a while but i'm in the 80 percent i don't care camp i will be alone at work staring down at my wrist and i will just get joy out of that experience and, <laughs> if and I'm, you sure, what, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you feel that uh, no matter what watch you're wearing, wh- whether it's your Seamaster or it's your Timex. Yeah, no, it's because I selected it and I loved it. And like you bring up a great point. So like another one in my collection is I have the the Timex Q reissue, which is a reissue of a 
super cool retro watch originally from the 70s i have like the pepsi it's not a gmt obviously but it is a pepsi kind of gmt inspired bezel really cool bracelet and you know it's just like one of those watches i think it's around like 38 37 millimeters on the wrist and it's just or centimeters on the wrist it is just awesome it's just an awesome watch it like it's a very like hip looking watch and like it it holds up to anything and ironically i get more people i find staring at that watch from afar than i do my omega but they don't know the difference. They just think it looks amazing. So, I mean, it's to me, that's a nice bonus. But the most important thing is that you really connect with the watch. You want to wear the watch. Who the hell wants to just buy watches and keep them in a drawer? Yeah, exactly. I, uh, you know, I don't purposely do this, but I find myself, uh, like you said, staring down at my wrist. And day in and day out, I see a different watch on my wrist every single time. And that's kind of what I love about starting the, my collection of watches is that I don't have to wear the same thing every day. And at the same time, I don't have to keep all of my nicer ones in the drawer, in the cabinet. I don't have to keep my not so nice ones in the drawer, in the cabinet. I switch them out every day. And every single time I look down, I see something new yet, um, you know, something that, that, I, I, I love, you know, and, and I, I look down, whether it's like, like you said, whether it's my Omega or my Spinnaker um, that I got uh, from a, a watch subscription, because after I bought my Omega, I, I was you obsessed. Went I, I you went more. in deep. You went in deep. You did not, you did <laughs> not, you did not take the, uh, the laps in the kiddie pool. You, you went in, you went yeah. in pretty hard. I was, uh, you know, you showed up like, a few days later and you're like, I had a subscription. I was like, okay, so this could be a financially uh, abusive relationship you've started with yourself um, and your uh, wife's not going to be happy. So yeah, well, I tend um, to do that. So. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Um, all right. So, I mean, we talked about Omega. We're going to talk a lot more about Omega, you know, Mike and I both being fans of the Seamaster, him being a big fan, his first real watch of kind of the, the original Seamaster reissue. Um, Myself having the more uh, modern uh, Seamaster 300 Professional, uh, 300M. Um, but, you know, I think more, definitely more of our collection to come we'll discuss. Um, but I think we're also really going to get into what brands we have our eye on right now. Where do we think the greatest value is? Where do we think the kind of uh, minefield to avoid currently is um, on overpriced watches, either models or brands. Um, so more to come on that. Um, and we're going to be speaking with um, both people who are on the retail side, um, kind of managers of, of local boutiques in New York City, where we're based, which we have a luckily have access to and are able to kind of go in, feign a little bit of interest, but walk out actually not buying a watch, having tried on a bunch and taking a bunch of photos for social media. Which, um, honestly, yeah. is a little difficult for me, but yeah, yeah. happens yeah. every now and then. Yeah, Mike Mike has his like, success rate of like not buying at like 50. <laughs> Mine's around 10%, so you know, it is what it is. That's a wash. You know, somewhere in the middle, we're like one-third successful uh, of, uh, as a team not, not purchasing something. <laughs> but you know, you're going to hear from store managers um, on trends with some of the brands that we really love. Um, we're also going to be grabbing on some um, some micro brands that we love, um, some some brand ambassadors, some spokespeople from there to really kind of get into the value, get into the production process, 
get into why their brand versus a more heavily priced brand. Um, and so that'll be kind of a great series of conversations. And then on the whiskey side, um, full transparency, I am much more of a bourbon, bourbon, I would say bourbon file, fiend, <laughs> fiend file, bourbon file, like cinephile, but we'll go bourbon file on that. Um, so that's kind of the number one love there. Um, I appreciate a good Irish whiskey and I am slowly, and I'm going to underline slowly warming up to, um, scotch with Mike's guidance and help. Um, but you know, I I think your neck, the next step for you before scotch will have to be Japanese whiskey as we've been. That is true. That is, that is a good training wheel. I've had a few of those and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, and like with, and they tell, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're yeah. the expert in this spot. There are fewer, obviously fewer Japanese whiskeys to choose from than scotches in the U.S. market. And I have found that the limited selection actually helps with the quality. Like it's harder to, to like screw up and order a bad Jap or like buy a bad Japanese whiskey. I, I it's much easier agree. to buy a, like the game of Thrones version of Johnny Walker. And then you take a sip and you want to kill yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I threw out wrong, three but... quarters of that bottle. I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> couldn't do it. Uh, no, you're you're absolutely uh, right there. Um, yeah. And you know the, the the problem with having the wide variety of uh, scotches in the in the American market is that there's such a vast flavor discrepancy between all of them. So yeah. it, the the ability to to pick one. And, and pick one that's right for you is a lot more difficult than, like you said, with Japanese whiskeys, that, uh, that there are much fewer uh, variety. There, there's much less variety. In the U.S. market. In the U.S. market. Available, course, yeah. yes. In case there's any international leader or listeners here, we don't want anybody uh, freaking out. So <laughs> at least in our local liquor stores, um, much harder or much easier not to screw that, screw that purchase up. Yeah. Um, we'll also be talking about kind of the American whiskey micro distillery explosion that we've seen over the past few years. Um, if you like literally put in distillery to Google maps around the New York city area, there has to be like 150 that have popped up. Um, some that have been here for many years, other ones that have just kind of arisen. Um, there's multiple in the city now. I mean, yeah. there's, there's Manhattan. Uh, Manhattan yeah. opened up their very great, first uh, yeah. distillery since great, Prohibition. Yeah, Great Jones Distilling Company just opened up in Manhattan. As Mike said, it's the first one. We have awesome distilleries like Kings County in Brooklyn and um, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn and Widow you know, Jane. Yeah, Widow Jane in Brooklyn. So these are ones that have started to all do their own things. Widow Jane and Kings County are. I've seen, you know, when I've been in stores in Texas and Seattle and California, so they're definitely get getting distributed. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the the big boys, the you know, <laughs> Jim Beams, the Wild Turkeys, the Woodfords, and Buffalo the conglom- yeah, the Buffalo Trace, the conglomerates that own them versus these micro distilleries. Many in in kind of market the market wise, it's very much starting to align the way that the craft beer explosion happened 10, 12, 15 years ago in the U S right. So we will be talk, trying to talk to these micro distillery um, master distillers and owners about kind of what they're doing 
what the market is right now, what the market value is for them right now, opportunity. And, you know, some of the stuff that they're putting out is just amazing, but there's also a lot to avoid because a lot of them, and Mike, I'm sure you can talk to this, right? Uh, right. A lot of them, you know, you have to kind of watch out for the gimmick yes. bottle, the blender, the overly sourced bottle, the non-age statement, the non-mash bill. <laughs> yeah. You don't know where the product's coming from. So while there are many good ones, there are some that you buy and you're just like, oh my gosh, I, you know, this is, this is, I'm going to use this for mouthwash and that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and you know that's why I think, uh, especially with these micro distilleries, a lot of them, if you go to the distillery itself, uh, a lot of them offer tastings. I highly re- recommend tasting it prior to buying. <laughs> you, you have to. You, Mike, <laughs> why have you done this? Before? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> once or twice. Um, you, you have to do it because you you can't blindly uh, buy a bottle from from a micro distillery and, and expect it to be incredible. No matter what the price is, they, they could be selling it for a hundred bucks and you go in and think, well, if they're selling it for a hundred bucks, it has to be good. Eh, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Underline that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, it's wild right now. And uh, the American whiskey scene, you know, you have kind of these great distillers and then you have a few of these kind of mad scientists who have really focused on kind of how there have been master scotch blenders for hundreds of years. Now you're starting to get like the master American whiskey blenders. And, you know, the big names you think about are like High West, who was founded by an actual chemist. And you have Barrel, um, which does some amazing blended blended whiskeys. And, you know, as as Mike said, price is so far away from the ultimate determinant of a good bottle of whiskey like these things are apples and oranges night and day i don't know whatever other analogy you want to put in there (laughs) it is and the insane thing too and in living in a city as dense as new york you have a liquor store every two blocks right and we'll talk about that a little bit of strategy i think for especially people who live in cities how to navigate kind of the local liquor store scene and get the best values etc but You'll walk into a store in New York and I'll use the Elijah Craig 18-year-old bourbon. That's been a pretty much mainstay annual release for a few years now. You'll walk into a store on the Upper East Side and it will be $400. You literally walk five blocks away and it will be $180. And people are just kind of right now because bourbon and whiskey has become so popular will just be like, oh, it's an expensive bottle. Oh, that's a high age statement. Oh, that means I'll like it. Oh, that means someone will appreciate it as a gift. Yeah. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. <laughs> At the minimum, get on Drizzly and compare prices. Yeah. Price doesn't mean quality. Age statement doesn't mean quality. I had a four-year-old bourbon the other day, um, Old Forester Single Barrel. That was one of the best bourbons I've had all year. It was four years old. You know, it's it's it's... It's really about kind of the quality of the ingredients, the mastery of the distillery, and making sure you're not getting screwed over just because there's a new label or a release or a gimmick or one store is selling higher than the other. I don't know, Mike, if you have any no, thoughts I, I, on that. As a region, as a region suburbanite who's moved <laughs> out of the city, I'm not sure you have any other uh, takes. Um, well, 
I yeah, I did just move out of the city, but <laughs> not far enough to get uh, good prices on uh, anything. On some of those bonds, <laughs> groceries, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, nothing. No, it's it's just like I'm living in the city. Just we'll. Um, no, I, I completely agree. I mean that that glass of bourbon that's in your hand right now, uh, the Knob Creek, a, I will put that against so many seventy, eighty dollar bottles, and that will win so many t- every time it'll win um you know you, you like kevin said you go to a store you see this you know beautiful bottle uh beautiful packaging and the the big the big sticker on it saying you know 2.99 3.99 you think oh my god this is perfect for a wedding gift this is perfect for a birthday gift uh perfect for for a client of mine but it means nothing that sticker means absolutely nothing <laughs> you know what you should do for your client or your friend at a wedding you should buy them a bottle of knob creek or buy them a bottle of wild turkey rare breed for freaking 45 dollars or 50 dollars yep. put it in a box write a note about how this is better than nine tenths of the bottles out there and then put another 150 dollars in the envelope and said I, I didn't want to waste my money and I wanted you to have a better time. And then that's how you should gift that to somebody. Every time you're thinking about spending $300 on something. Now, scotch is a different ball game. I'm not as well-versed in it. Obviously age is much more of a factor in quality. I don't know if quality is the right word, but flavor infusion. And after a while with bourbon, I mean, it's like you're sucking on a wood chip. <laughs> it's like over like 18 years. So there's a fine line, but, but scotch is a whole different ball game, and we'll go we'll go into that a little bit more. And then, there are, of course, the layer down from that, which is kind of the mad scientist blending of American whiskey and bourbons, is when you kind of have like a 15-year product, but it's like 60% 15, and then like, you know, 10% four-year bourbon. And then you start to get some like crazy flavors where it's like oak and nut on the front end and then it's like boom caramel on the back end and the blenders who can do that really really well are that is worth your money that's 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 that is a price premium that you're paying for because they actually have done something other than age it in a barrel and you know pulled it after three years as a micro micro distillery right and that's like the and then like put like i think i saw a bottle the other day of like a las vegas company with like a samurai on the like a well, American whiskey bottle with like a samurai on the cover. And I like looked into it and it's like two year, two year old whiskey. And I'm just like, this probably tastes horrible. <laughs> so, I can't imagine. You just got to do your homework. Do not, do not be blinded by the, uh, the uh, intricate logos and price tags out there. Which obviously can play a part when you know what you're looking for, because you know, we have, we bought together uh, this bottle of uh, Wild Turkey, the 17-year bottle of bond. Not only is it incredibly delicious, but it's a beautiful bottle. It's a beautiful bottle. And so it, it, it does play a role sometimes, but you got to know what's inside that bottle first. That's the primary. The experience, it's awesome to have the bonus of the bottle. Yep. But it should be a secondary, and I like a way secondary yeah. <laughs> factor yeah. yes, in exactly. buying it. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we are kind of coming up to the end of the first episode. I know we covered a lot. 
Um, but I, you know, Mike and I wanted to touch on basically a bunch of the themes that we're going to be hitting on in the Watching Bourbon series. Um, and as I said before, that is watch quality, watch build, watch price points, watch minefields to avoid, watch micro brands. And then on the other side of the whiskey universe, kind of the same idea, right? It's it's how can we help you guys out there get that bottle that first and foremost has great juice inside of it and you're not going to get screwed over on price and either you're going to be drinking it or somebody important in your life that you're going to be drinking it and you're going to be doing that together. It's going to be a great experience. Um, so I will kind of um, leave with kind of one tip of advice before we get into the other episodes in the coming weeks. Um, and that is whether it's watches or whiskey, you know, buy what you enjoy, not what you think other people are going to care about. Um, and that's, I think, a big rule. And you can even extend that out to other things in life. But because we're not trying to be too large or philosophical on this show, I will keep that to watches and whiskey. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you want to leave leave the first-time listeners with anything. Um, all I want to say is do your homework first. Don't go and buy, like Kevin said, don't go and buy something just because it looks nice, just because other people are doing it. Do your homework. You're going you're gonna to appreciate what, what comes out of it. Great. Um, awesome. So we will be back soon. Um, so remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I believe we're out on Spotify and Apple right now, coming to additional ones soon. Um, and if you love watches and whiskey and want more recommendations and some cool photos and to be part of a community, be sure to follow us on Instagram at watching bourbon. It's the same name as the show. So you probably can't screw it up um, until next time. Thank you guys for tuning in and we will be back. Thanks a lot, guys.